Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Shahrazad Akbar, who is the chairperson of the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission. Shahrazad fights on behalf of her fellow Afghan citizens' access to the full range of human rights. Her responsibility includes dissecting, criticizing, and reforming a broken system which has rendered human rights as more of a privilege than a precedent. She has degrees from Oxford University and Smith College and was selected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum in 2017. And in our conversation, we discuss the importance of understanding context in different human rights projects around the world, as well as finding the strength to keep going even in the face of daily adversity. We also tap into what literature, art, and storytelling can teach us about our shared humanity. And lastly, we discuss what it means and what it takes to be a leader of a human rights initiative in the context of war during these peace negotiations with the Taliban. I had this conversation with Shahrazad in her office in Kabul, Afghanistan at the end of 2020. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further delay, I bring you Shahrazad Akbar. Shahzad Akbar, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I'm well. I'm well. Good. Shahzad, can you tell us where we are right now? Describe where we're sitting, if you could. Sure. You're now in the central office of Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission, in my office. And um, it's a very big office for one person, actually. But yeah, it's usually where I spend most of my time, I must say. I don't have a lot of movement partly because of security, but partly mm-hmm. because of COVID-19 and the nature of mm-hmm. world right now, where you do a lot of things virtually. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to be here. I know you're a very busy uh, person. You're in the midst of Human Rights Week, and you have a big presentation or four presentations to get ready for. So I appreciate you giving me this time. I think the work that you do, Shahrazad, is incredible. I think the person that you've become and the person that you represent is inspirational for people of Afghanistan and for people literally across the world, especially young women. And you're a beacon of what it means to be somebody who fights for human rights. And I think the work that you do is commendable. And that's the reason why I'd like to speak with you. And so the way I like to start my conversations is by asking my guests in their own words, how do you describe who you are? Okay. Well, thank you for those kind words. I'm not sure I deserve them. There are Many people in Afghanistan, especially in the situation of conflict, that are doing much more important work and they are more at the front lines of what we are trying to do. I, I am privileged in many different ways compared to those, those people, activists who are working across Afghanistan. In terms of how I describe myself, I am a human rights activist. I am a mom. I love literature. I love culture. So I have had the fortune of working on those areas as well. But I think mainly a human rights activist and a mom. Now, let's talk about your background, the way your life has kind of taken shape and how that has kind of informed who you are now and informed the way you see the world and informs your relationship with the world. Mm. And so could you kind of talk about, you know, where you're from and the time frame in which you were born and kind of what was happening in your world at that time? 
I was born in 1987 in Jauzjan, Afghanistan, in North Afghanistan. And a lot has happened in Afghanistan and the world, I mean, and the world since, since I was born. Major changes, new challenges that we have to confront as a humanity and then we have to confront as Afghans here. In my lifetime in Afghanistan, my country, which is a central theme in my life, working for Afghanistan, being an Afghan is very, very important to me since I was born. My country has always been in conflict, unfortunately. So I have seen the society fragmented around different kinds of identities. So ethnic identity, which mainly shaped the years of civil war in Afghanistan, Mujahideen period, early 90s, late 80s. And later, other forms of conflict as well, around where religious identity became very prominent as a tool for mobilization and later as, as a justification for conflict. However, also it has been a period of, you know, 87 to, to today, it has been also a period of greater connection of Afghanistan to the world in many ways. So Afghanistan opened up to the world and Afghans also went to many different corners of the world. And I think both migration and then this opening up post-2001 really transformed Afghanistan, really changed Afghanistan. And it impacted me as, as a child and a teenager, and now, you know, as a, as a professional woman working in this country. In this period, I think Afghanistan came to, you know, for the first time really to the center stage of global issues, global discussions uh, in post-2001. International involvement and international engagement in Afghanistan was really a different form of engagement than before compared to our history. Uh, we try to define a new relationship to the world, one that's not only about, you know, invasion and defeating invasions, but more about collaboration, partnership. And, you know, a lot went wrong in that partnership. I think there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misconception about what that's about and what the goals of this partnership with the world is about. And, of course, a lot of corruption and waste, but also a lot of good things happened as a result of this changed relationship with the world. It meant that opportunities opened up for groups and segments in society that weren't available before. It meant greater social mobility across Afghanistan. It meant that we were more exposed to the global discussions around key issues, um, like human rights being top among them, to the extent that we were never before. So the world came to us, and we also had as being all around the world. During the years of the conflict, many people went and settled in different countries and they kept their relationship with their communities in Afghanistan. So they also, when visiting, when engaging, they brought new things to our communities, to our families. And I think so in that sense, it has been, it has been a period of almost constant change since I was born for Afghanistan. Thank you for that response. Thank you for that nuanced kind of understanding of, of what's going on. And so I think people often forget that in a post 9-11 world, people and countries went to Afghanistan, but I think it's important too that there was an opening up of Afghanistan, yeah. right? So not only was there exposure from you know NATO forces, ISAF forces here in Afghanistan, but there was also an opening up because the timing of, of that was when the internet really took place and really yeah. took hold. Mm -hmm. And so many young Afghans, many Afghans in general, older and younger, their eyes and their minds opened mm. to what was possible. Mm. And so I think it'd be really great to kind of understand 
you know, given the fact that you were born in this country, raised in this country, help us understand what Afghanistan was before the opening up of it. Hmm. Help us understand what Afghanistan was like during the darkest moments and hmm. during the violence. What did it feel like to live in this country before you knew that violence was not the norm? Hmm. What was that like? Some of my earliest memories, for instance, when I was six, seven, eight, was related to either news of violence or then violence itself. But then we went through a period, we went through a period of civil war, which was really, I think, destroyed a lot in this country. And then Taliban period. And I think in the Taliban period, the feeling that was most, um, I mean, the feeling that I felt, although I was very, very young, was this feeling of being disconnected and being forgotten. You know, Afghanistan being disconnected from the rest of the world and Afghanistan being forgotten by the rest of the world because outrageous things were happening. Women were being flogged on the streets. Women were being stoned. Our statues were being blown up. Our cultural heritage was being blown up. And it was not something that was happening anywhere else in the world. I mean, even in very extreme Islamic regimes, Iran being an example, just neighboring country, this wasn't the case. You know, Afghan women were forced to cover themselves completely while in public or always be accompanied by a man, by a male relative. And that also very strictly defined what the relationship needs to be. So it felt like, where are we? You know, where is hope? And my, my parents lived here during the war as well. And during the war, we just, our strategy was, we were internally dis- displaced basically. So we would go wherever, we went to the north because there was limited security and opportunities for us to go to school and, and continue to learn and be educated and have a relatively peaceful life. But once Taliban took over, we saw no place for ourselves in the society because we were mostly girls and our parents didn't feel like we could study or we were recognized as humans under this regime. So we migrated to Pakistan. So it was a very specific feeling of like looking at the future and having no hope because you didn't know Will the Taliban change? Will they be overthrown? Will this be the case now for the rest of our lives? And if this is the case for the rest of our lives, where will our country stand? I mean, when other people are busy, other countries are busy strategizing how to expand access to healthcare, how to improve the quality of their education, how to improve their curriculum, how to better use technology, our government is obsessed with how long someone's beard is and how, how covered a woman is in public. So right. it, seemed, it seemed quite bleak. Right. Um, that that doesn't mean that right now is you know, a period of great hope. There's a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of fear. There's a lot of concern. But that moment felt particularly hopeless um, for me as a child, yes. And what's interesting about what you're sharing is, in retrospect, compared to what life is like now in Afghanistan, it seems very bleak. And it was very bleak and dark. And Afghans describe it as the darkest period in all of Afghan history and all of world history in some Mm. sense. Mm. But what's really interesting about human beings and what's really curious about the human condition is that even in the darkest places, human beings know how to find the light. Mm. And so I'm curious to know if you could share a memory or two or moments where you as a child, as a young girl growing up in Afghanistan, was able to find moments of light? It was for me a lot about books. Books were very central to my upbringing and literature was very central to my upbringing. And so that was my escape. I would read 
books. I would read fiction. In fiction, I would find our common humanity, that people, when you look at across human history in different situations and different positions, an old man in Russia or, or a young woman in a concentration camp in Germany or, you know, someone fighting against occupation in, in Africa, mm. in, in different places in the world, that there was a lot that we had in common. That this is not the first and the last mm. time that difficult periods come and people fight and people get through these difficult periods. And that as humans, we have this ability, this capacity to survive hardship, to survive challenges and to make it through to something better. So that helped a lot. Music helped. We always had music as, as part of also as part of my upbringing at home. We listened to music. We listened to classical Afghan music. We didn't have access, especially before 2001, to a lot of world music. But after that, uh, we tried to also kind of listen to world music as well. But music and literature was really helpful. I remember um, kind of evenings when we would just get together and get talk about books or do what we call mushaira, these poetry. Um, I don't really know how to explain it in English. But, you know, you, you read a poem and then the other person reads a poem and you can decide that these poems would be about a specific subject or that the last letter of the poem that you read should be the beginning of the poem that other person reads, like sort of competition with poetry. Anyways, we, we would do mushairas or we would talk about books, we would talk about, um, uh, you know, history. And these things, I think, um, helped, um, helped us and my family specifically. Uh, I, I can't generalize this experience, obviously. But yeah. Now, what's wonderful about books and music is that they both allow the human mind to escape. Yes. They allow the human mind to go to a place that is far from the present. Yeah. And so what you're, what you're describing is, although you were finding joy in these moments, they were experiences of joy based on an experience of escapement. Yeah. Which is really curious. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It wasn't, the things that were around us weren't, there wasn't a lot of hope in what was going on around us. But I think mm. in the books, I could just drown myself in other people's stories. I could see what's going on in Algeria, what's going on, you know, the story from Tunisia, the story about, you know, the small village in, in the US and, and what people are doing there. Um, it, it was a sort of escape, I think. Mm. Movies do the same thing but we didn't have that kind of access to movies mm -hmm. but but books and um and also i think it was it was important because when you are living in a country and under a regime that seems so different mm. um it's important to remember that that common humanity that you know people all around the world have have some shared goals and ambitions and aspirations um that same things can make them happy and sad, you know. And this was important to remember, to not feel like we are so isolated. I once read that an author, he said the reason why he writes books and the reason why he writes is because he wants his words and his books to make people feel like they're not alone. Yeah. And the idea of having a, a story of adversity and tribulation and loss mm. makes others feel as though they're not alone because what's interesting about human beings and the human condition is that everybody suffers to mm. some degree yeah, absolutely. and what's 
what's interesting is, you know, uh, being here in Afghanistan, speaking to people is, you know, I tell them that life in the United States isn't that great. Yeah. People in the United States still suffer too. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of, you know, mental illnesses and mental health in the United States is going through the roof, especially now with COVID. Yeah. And it's because of this idea of isolation yeah. that you referred to. Yeah. What's wonderful about the United States is that people have the ability to do what they want, when they want, how they want, mm. whenever they want. Yeah. But the detriment of the United States too, especially for people like you and I that come from a collectivist culture, yeah. is that you're also alone sometimes, yeah. a lot of the times. Yeah. Mm. And that's very difficult for many people that come from collectivist cultures. Mm. So I think this is a great way to kind of talk about how you see the world through an anthropological lens. Yeah. And how that maybe informs the work you do as a human rights activist and as a leader here in Afghanistan. How do you kind of think about culture and what culture means and how to change culture? Those are really, really big questions, but things that I, I keep obsessing about because of my training, but also I think because of my upbringing, because I was exposed to different cultures at a young age. Not only because of moving from Kabul to a village, because of the conflict, and I saw, oh God, villages are so different. You know, the way people organize their lives and things that people eat. I mean, when I went to the village and I was very young, I saw people keeping chickens and, and cows, and all of that was fascinating to me because here in Kabul, we lived in an apartment building. Of course, I didn't have that kind of exposure. But then later, also traveling from living in Kabul, living in Mazar, living in Shuburhan, then living in Pakistan, then being a student in the U.S. and then being a student in the U.K. just gave me a first-hand experience of living in different cultural contexts, how people adapt and what people prioritize. So it's something that I think about and I have lived with. I remember when I went to first went to U.S., I was um, 19. I went for my um, college. I went to uh, Massachusetts. And Northampton, Massachusetts is as different from Kabul as you can imagine. You know, it's a small town. It's mostly middle class, of course, very secure relatively. So initially when I went there, I just felt like I am in a different universe. And when I looked at young people my age, the things that they were worried about and the things that young people in my country were worried about, especially young women, because I went to an all-women's college, it seemed so different. Because young women in my country, by the time you're 18, you're probably the head, like leading a household. You have children, you have to deal with the politics of your mother-in-law and sister-in-law and all of that. And these young women were just, had come from home to the dorm and it was a huge transition for them, obviously, understandably. So I was looking at all of this, but also then I ended up volunteering for a shelter a sort of an institution and working with people who are homeless and mental illnesses. And so I realized, you know, every society has its problems. Every society has its challenges. And as you said, there is suffering everywhere. And it's about how societies, based on their cultural assumptions, how do they categorize what's a problem and what's not? What do they attach stigma to? What do they attach importance to? The needs of which constituencies are really prioritized based on the inequalities that exist. And I take that to heart in terms of my human rights work because, of course, there are serious human rights issues and violations in the U.S. There is serious racism in the U.S. There is serious sexism in the U.S. Um, There is serious stigma in the U.S. attached to, for instance, mental health issues. And... In Afghanistan, there are other categories that are vulnerable, right? Because of the cultural context here, 
There are other human rights issues that have a greater agency. I think here in Afghanistan, we are still working on everyone respecting that and, and protecting the right to life, which is a basic human right. So kind of understanding those cultural differences and, and, and realizing we have universal human rights. Afghans are as deserving of those full range of human rights as any human being on world. So I don't believe in this this notion that somehow we should have less rights because we are Afghans, but that the, ex- the, lived, the lived experience of those rights differ depending on the culture, depending on the institutions and systems and what you have access to. The end goal is the same. All humans should have access to their full range of human rights, regardless of every distinction that we have. It's race, it's sex, it's sexual orientation, it's ethnicity, it's gender, all of that. But that the lived experience of that and the urgency of that really matters from context to context. Yeah, I think that's really great. Now, as somebody now who is leading the charge here in Afghanistan as the biggest proponent of human rights in the country, what is it like to hold that responsibility of having all those young boys and girls who don't know any better learn what it means to understand what human rights is How do you hold the sense of responsibility that you have now as somebody who is appointed as the leader of human rights in Afghanistan? It's a huge, it's a major responsibility, of course. Uh, An independent human rights commission, we have a once independent human rights commission. There are national human rights institutions across the world. I think they all, regardless of where they are, you know, Sweden or Afghanistan, they have a major responsibility in terms of monitoring, protecting, and promoting human rights of the citizens. In Afghanistan, the responsibility feels heavier because we have ongoing violation of human rights due to conflict, due to corruption, due to culture of impunity. These big, big issues that addressing them requires changing state structures and changing societies, changing culture. So if you have a human rights violation in a place where they have a well-functioning government in place and they have good laws that respect and uphold human rights, then you go and address that specific problem. But here, all the preconditions for people's access to their human rights are being built or are non-existent. I mean, we have a legal framework that still requires a lot of work. We have state institutions that are not responsive. They are not effective. And so we have a culture of impunity that allows people who violate human rights get away. So it's enormous. And I think it's one of the hardest things is I feel like I constantly need to explain to people is that people also expect so much, right? They, and, and, and they have a right to expect. They have a right to expect. They, they say, if I come and I register a complaint about a warlord, that person needs to be punished. Why is the commission not doing enough to, to punish that person? And we, we say, we don't have a police force. We don't prosecute. We don't have a court. We can follow up. We can go to the authorities. But you have to have all these systems functioning better. We are working on getting the government to improve these systems. But then it requires a really huge collective effort to improve the human rights situation in Afghanistan. And the first step is to stop the violence. The first step is to respect human rights, all Afghans' right to life. So it's challenging because I think there's there's so much work needs to be done. Our our institution, of course, is, is a flawed institution. We have a lot of work to do to become a better institution ourselves. I and my colleagues try every day, but we are also working in extremely challenging, like everyone now wants, an extremely challenging context. You know, there was a discussion a few days ago with a, with a donor to the commission. And 
they had written like you know this report this this obligation hasn't been met in this way and this and my colleague was telling me are they forgetting that we lost two of our colleagues in june and this has mental health implications for all of us by everyone we are expected to function as if it's business as usual as, as if this is a normal situation this is not a normal situation we don't live in a normal situation we all have spent a huge amount of time thinking about how to stay alive and that means that that energy and that time and that resources are not spent on making things better and i think this is this is the context in which all of us operate not just us but i think this is this is an important context for human rights work in afghanistan so if you're thinking about staying alive every day and the bloodshed's not only in the countryside with the fighting with the Taliban and ISIS and the different terrorist groups that exist throughout the country, but also here in Kabul where every day, every other day, there's a bombing or two, mm. if not three. This is the norm here. Yeah. And when you do fall and somebody, a colleague, a neighbor, somebody dies unexpectedly yeah. too early, yeah. how do you bounce back? Yeah. What is it that you do specifically that allows you to be so resilient. Yeah. How does that happen? It's it's hard. I think I always worry about um, us as a society becoming indifferent to loss. Resilience is important, very important, but it's also important to grieve. I think it's very important to grieve. It's very important to acknowledge the pain of loss because unless we really acknowledge, unless we really find ways to grieve, this will be normalized. That's my fear, right? This will be never for the families themselves, of course, when you lose a loved one, but for the greater society. And I think the more we speak about the pain of this loss and the trauma that it causes us as a society, the more we bring urgency to ending this war. Every day I, I have to read reports about violations of human rights, so about different stories of victimhood. This morning I started reading a report about child deportees from Iran and how they are being, before being deported to Afghanistan, Afghan children, 15, 16 girls, boys, how they are sexually abused and often raped. And it's hard. It's, it's, uh, it takes a huge emotional toll uh, on, on, on all of us, on all my colleagues and me, and I think generally the Afghan public. How do I bounce back? Well, I don't think we have a lot of options. So I try to think about the fact that if I say I'm going to give up, what does that mean for me personally? Am I just going to stay home? Like, is that what am I going to do now? How is that going to help me with my grief? How is that going to help me with my anger about everything that's not going right? And what's the implications of that? If I say I give up and I'm in a position of privilege, relative privilege, what does it mean for people who who can't, who don't have that option to give up. Their livelihood depends on, on confronting these atrocities on a daily basis. So one of, it, one of it is really actually not having option. The other is that I believe Avons deserve better. I believe Avons deserve for all of us to do more for them. So even what I try to do is insufficient. So I, when I am in grief, I try not to let grief to paralyze me. I think that's one of the biggest challenges I face personally as an, as an individual. Because grief can be paralyzing. It can, it's just, it, sometimes it can feel like, what's the point? What's the point of all of this? If, if tomorrow another young person will be killed, what's the point of all of this? And I try to avoid that. I try to find other ways to grieve by trying to do more, by trying to 
by reading poetry, talking to friends, talking to family. I do get stuck for one or two or three days sometimes in that everything is pointless situation. But then I try to find a way out. And I think in trying to find a way out, uh, my whole upbringing helps with that. Because when you live in a situation and you're constantly trying to survive the situation, you develop tools um, to, to overcome that. That's part of survival. What are some of those tools? It, is it escape and engagement? Is it escape in the context of what you shared earlier about your upbringing in terms of music and poetry? And is it engagement in terms of speaking to people who have also lost so they don't feel like they're so alone or you don't feel like you're so alone? Is that what you're referring to? Well, some of the tools for me, I mean, a big part of it is my work. You know, trying to make impact, trying to raise a voice, trying to put a marker in the sand saying, this happened now. So... For instance, in dealing with civilian casualties, with loss of our own colleagues, I think every step that we take amplifying the voice of victims of war in Afghanistan helps me with my grief because I feel like I'm not being silent. I'm trying to do something about this. So some of it comes from actually my work and thinking more strategically about the work and how it can be done better. Some of it really comes from looking at my colleagues and getting inspired by the work they do or the work of other inspiring people in Afghanistan, media, you know, other people who are on the front lines standing up for these values, kind of trying to find hope in the work that they do and the impact that they have. It really helps. And then personal tools, like, as I said, poetry and, and sometimes just, you know, opening Netflix and watching some really fun but <laughs> meaningless show. <laughs> you know? It's all escapism in some sense. So I think this is a great little segue to kind of talk about, you know, the current moment that you're dealing with, the current moment that Afghanistan is dealing with, in particular as it pertains to your work and how your work quite literally is very much part of the conversation as it pertains to the peace process with the Taliban. I think it's fair to say that the Taliban is now part of the fabric of our Afghan society. Mm. They may not be here in Kabul, but they're in parts of Afghanistan. Mm. And there's the Taliban themselves, but then there's also the mentality of the Taliban that mm. exists amongst, amongst people that aren't fighting with the Taliban. Mm. So I'm curious to know, as it pertains to the peace process and being quite literally somebody that can bridge both worlds together, the Afghan world with the Western world, Afghan culture with a real sense of human rights, what's it like now to be on the forefront facing the Taliban and asking for human rights, in particular women's rights. Mm. What is that like and what is not being discussed that people need to know? Mm. So human rights is central to any peace process, uh, obviously, because the idea, the goal for peace should be, I think, expanding access to human rights. And I think many times the roots of conflict relate to violations of human rights, different forms of violations of human rights. Um, in Afghanistan, human rights is, of course, central to the peace process for these reasons, but also because the two sides have different understandings of human rights, rights of women, rights of minorities, religious minorities in particular, freedom of expression. So a whole range of human rights issues are really central to this peace process. I think a huge part of it is power, but there's also a difference of understanding about how the society needs to be organized and how the laws need to be structured. So it's 
that makes our, our responsibility huge. What we have tried to do in the commission is actually prepare ourselves for the peace process, meaning to explore these human rights issues that we think might become controversial in the peace process or might rise during the peace process or should rise. Because some issues, for instance, for victims' rights, we think we should proactively ask both sides to put this on the agenda and to think about this and to come up with mechanisms to address this issue. But for all of this, how to prepare ourselves to be better advocates, better experts, to highlight priorities, to highlight also common ground, where there is common ground, and to be prepared to defend, to the extent that we can, human rights of all Afghans with no discrimination. And conversations about human rights is difficult with the Taliban, but it's also sometimes difficult with the government. This is important to acknowledge. Um, violations of human rights happen by both sides. With Taliban, there is a systemic opposition, I think, to, for instance, gender equality. With government, you see how the government falls short in action, regularly, almost on a daily basis. So it's in that sense, we are dealing with both sides. We are holding, holding both sides to account. Of course, the conversation is more difficult with Taliban because they have a different departure point. With the Afghan government, it understands that it has legal obligations and it's failing short. With Taliban, it is, we don't accept this understanding of human rights on this particular issue. This is what you define as torture. We don't define as torture. We define as punishment, for instance, cutting hands, for instance. Um, so both conversations have to go on. We have to continuously try to improve human rights frameworks and human rights access with government because what we have right now is not good enough at all. It's not satisfactory at all. But also we have to push Taliban to move their position, basically, on these issues. Now, how do you do that? How do you make the Taliban uh, give a little? Well, that's what a negotiation is. Yes. Reconciliation is the coming together of different parties whereby every party has to give in order for everybody to gain. Yeah. So how do you get the Taliban to give? Well, I think, first of all, we will not be negotiating, right, in a, in a position. What our strategy is that we are going to remind both sides about the end goal of this process. The end goal of this process is dignified lives for all Afghans. Dignified lives for all Afghans. They, both sides claim that this is what they have in heart. Taliban would say, we are fighting because we want to return the possibility of dignified life for all Afghans. You know, we want to serve our people. How do you define dignified lives for all Afghans? Right. That's why where human rights come in. Right. That's where access to human rights comes in. That's where issues of non-discrimination. So if you believe in human and dignified lives for Afghans, Hazaras shouldn't be discriminated by the state. Hindus shouldn't be discriminated against by the state. If you believe in human rights for all, women should not be discriminated against by the state. That's the conversation that we'll have and we want to have with the Taliban. We also want to tell them, look, children have these rights and these special... What's un-Islamic about this? Tell us, what's un-Islamic about, about people having access to their basic human rights? It's on, the burden is on you to tell to us. To explain. To explain what's un-Islamic. And this is not, these conversations about human rights and Islam are not unique to Afghanistan. We are not the only Muslims on the planet. I mean... Islamic countries have national human rights institutions. Islamic countries have subscribed to these international mechanisms and conventions. Islamic countries meet their international obligations as part of the UN. So it's, I think they have to think through these issues. Where do they see Afghanistan in five years from now, in 10 years from now? If they want Afghanistan to be dependent on foreign aid, if they want Afghanistan to be poor and miserable, if they want Afghanistan to be isolated and not recognized by the international community, okay. 
If you make a choice to stone women and cut hands, those have consequences for the country and for the people of the country. And that creates a moral responsibility. So we need to remind them also about their own interests. What's their interest? Is their interest, are they only interested in saying we won and they lost? Or are they interested in a prosperous, sovereign country that is able, in a government that's able to meet the needs of its citizens? And you won't have a country in government like that unless you adhere to human rights. That's what we believe. And it's almost as though, you know, a conversation hasn't even taken place to define what each sees and understands as human rights, you know, freedom, punishment, the basic things that really capture and make up the legal framework for a society. So right now what I'm hearing you say is that this is the first step, actually, the Taliban, the Afghan government, international partners are now coming to the table to essentially start the conversation of how to define all these things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So we are in the, at the very beginning, in a sense. I think the first priority, as an Afghan, I see, for the both negotiating teams, is to pause the bloodshed. If you have decided to talk, why are you fighting? You have decided to talk. You have decided that war is not going to work. Let's talk. Let's figure out through talking. So pause. If you didn't conclude, if you didn't reach an agreement, people will return to battlefield, unfortunately. But when you are engaging in talks, really engage in talks and really create the environment where people can also engage in talks, where people are not afraid that if they speak about the peace process, tomorrow there will be a targeted attack and they will die. Make the opportunity, create an enabling environment, and then understand that not everything will be resolved around the negotiating table. You can agree on mechanisms to resolve difference of opinion about the legal framework. But you cannot, the negotiating teams do not have the qualifications, the trainings, and it's not the system towards which you're going to go through each article of the law. So then you have to agree on a mechanism jointly that will then look at this legal framework questions and bring in multiple voices, ideally bring in multiple voices, diverse voices. Yeah, this is just the beginning. And this process is very long. Things have to be defined. And people are now just coming to the table to essentially start that process. Great. Shahrazad, as we kind of wrap up this fascinating conversation, there's one question I'd like to ask all my guests. Yeah. What is your message for the world? I think there is now greater acknowledgement and realization that we are all interconnected, right? I mean, climate change is impacting us all. 9-11, in a way, impacted us all. COVID impacted us all. We are all interconnected. And progress, prosperity, access to human rights will really actually make a difference if it is universally experienced. I think we should all strive beyond our national borders. We should try to think as citizens of the world about what can we do to make this world better? And because we are interconnected, we can't afford to say, you know what, as long as I get what I want in my community, in my neighborhood, my job is done. So in that sense, I think it's very important, particularly for Afghanistan, as, as we're moving forward in this process, I see that fatigue, I hear about it, I have been hearing about it from our international partners for years. They're saying, you know, this country is not fixable, there is too much corruption, there is violence, you know, this is part of the culture of these people. We just have to attend to the needs of our own people. We are done here. I think that's unfair, first of all, because the problems that are here now is not a product of just Afghans. 
it's a historical to think that way. This is a product of a global picture of inequality, about the role of regional and international community in this region, you know, and a lot of bigger discussions about terrorism, how that functions. I'll give you one example. The weapons that are being used in the conflict in Afghanistan, where are they being produced? This is not just an Afghan problem. It is a problem for everyone. And so I think we are at that moment where there are more Afghans who are ready to take charge for the future of Afghanistan. So I appreciate that shift in global discussions about Afghanistan, international community discussion about Afghanistan, about Afghans taking more responsibility. Absolutely. Hold us accountable. We are responsible for our country. We have to take more responsibility. But this has to be an exchange. This has to be a partnership. This can't be, okay, we both tried something together. It didn't work. Now we are out. Deal with it yourself. Yeah, I think that's important to know. Shahzad Akbar, thank you for the work that you do and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you. You're very, very kind. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.